Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, you know, it was interesting to me growing up in, in the United States, which has this very triumphant narrative about its, uh, its founding, and then to learn that even from the very beginning, um, a lot of people, a lot of the colonists in North America assumed that the war between, you know, uh, the North American colonists and Great Britain was secretly put on by the French, that the French was somehow engineering this so they could divide and conquer their their rival Great Britain. And and, and that's just one of the many conspiracy theories that, that floated around from the very beginning. There was almost from the very birth of democracy, this idea that there were secret saboteurs, foreign agents, uh, seditious spies who were out to undermine this this great new project, this great new idea of democracy. And it it put this anxiety that, that quickly shaded into paranoia um, in Americans from the very, very beginning. Now, America's roots are also tied to the Freemasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the Freemasons, they don't, they don't start in America, but um, they arrive pretty quickly and, and they quickly become an institution whereby well-to-do men, upper middle class, upper class aristocratic men could sort of prove that they were special or um, more exalted or elevated than the, the common hoi polloi. And so Benjamin Franklin, great example of, a, of an American who, who really wanted to join the Freemasons and sort of saw them as a public display of his uh, status as a kind of first among equals, you know, as he was both doing things like um, starting public libraries and volunteer fire departments, he really was trying to imagine what a good democratic citizen would look like. And he, he felt that that the Freemasons were the way to kind of uh, represent that to the public. I like your line that uh, like smallpox and Christianity, Freemasons uh, or Freemasonry travelled across the Atlantic with the early colonists. I was always intrigued by that weird symbol on your paper money, the, uh, the that sort of weird eyes popped on the top of a pyramid. Is, does that relate to Freemasonry? Well, sure. I mean, that's a that's a pretty common symbol at the time that um, signifies the eye of providence, the idea that that God is looking down benevolently, and that's why it's on the, the dollar bill to sort of prove that um, God was showering good favor on this new nation. And so, when it's used in in early American symbolism, it's not there's nothing malevolent or nefarious about it. But the thing about these symbols is they linger on much longer than their actual meaning does. And so people started to forget what it actually symbolized, even as it was still sort of sitting around on dollar bills. And so, you know, really within the last 60, 70 years, people have started to look at that that symbol on the dollar bill and wonder, oh, is this actually something conspiratorial or malevolent? Is there some sort of secret Freemasonry uh, message that's being whispered here? Not that the Freemasons were particularly secretive in your country and indeed in mine. You know, Masonic buildings litter the landscape. Right, exactly. And, and they weren't secret at all. I think that, that surprised me when I did the research is that they were actually quite public. And again, because they wanted to symbolize that they or, you know, suggest to the public that they were a, a special group of people. I, I think that the conclusion I came to is that um, the American colonists who founded the United States, they didn't want 
the kind of inherited nobility that they saw in Great Britain. They didn't want an aristocracy based on birth, but they still wanted a a class system. They still wanted an aristocracy. And and Freemasonry was a way of almost kind of validating an aristocratic uh, American class that wasn't based on nobility or birth. It was something you could ascend to, but it still separated you from the rest of, of, of the public. Now, Donald Trump uh, sweeps into power, helped by all sorts of conspiracy theorists, but of course he's uh, not the first uh, president to do so. I'm of an age that remembers George W. Bush, for example, being in the Skull and Bone Society at Yale, and uh, you tell us that it can be dated back to George Washington. Right. I mean, George Washington was one of um, many of the the founding fathers of the United States who uh, gave serious credence to the idea that the French Revolution was actually the work of uh, this group called the Illuminati, which was a very short-lived organization in Bavaria, Germany in the 1770s that was uh, quickly suppressed, but became a scapegoat to explain why the French Revolution had gone you know, so wrong and turned so bloody and violent. And people began to suspect that maybe the secret group, the Illuminati, was behind it all. And that that seems very far-fetched, but um, George Washington believed it. Um, the, the second and third presidents of the United States, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, in the election of 1800, both accused the other guy of being an <laughs> Illuminati stooge. And, uh, and so we had this kind of conspiratorial attitude from the very beginning. What about Honest Abe? Was Lincoln into uh, this sort of thing? Yeah, he was. I mean, in a very different way. Um, in the 1850s, there was a, a different conspiracy theory that um, had had its roots in truth. It wasn't entirely fiction, but um, the, there was a, a steadfast belief among northern uh, whites that something called the slaveocracy had taken over government and that the uh, southern slave-owning white power in uh, in the United States had infiltrated government, were controlling everything from behind the scenes, had, were this uh, malevolent organization that, that controlled power. And Abraham Lincoln um, talked about this in, in some of his most famous speeches, the, the, the speech uh, that gets known as A House Divided, um, mentions the slaveocracy, and he used that basically um, as part of his campaign to get elected because he was able to say... Um, that even if you're a white northerner and you didn't care about slavery, he was able to say, well, the, the slaveocracy has poisoned your government and now you're, um, you're being disenfranchised by these southern uh, slave owners. I'm talking to, uh, to Colin Dickey. Colin, there's a, a, a clear line, thought line in your book that conspiracy theories have almost always been rooted in fears of the other, whether that's uh, Catholics, black Americans or, or immigrants. Tell me more about that. Right. I mean, when I started to look at all of these conspiracy theories and, and what they were doing in in culture, what I found again and again was that anytime there's significant demographic change or a new wave of immigrants or um, a segment of the population that is asking for visibility or demanding rights, you will almost inevitably see conspiracy theories that prop up as an attempt to kind of delegitimize those movements. And one of the most sort of glaring and awful but but obvious examples of this was uh, in the 1960s in the civil rights era when uh, black Americans in the South were, were fighting for you know, economic and racial justice. And 
people started to spread the rumor that, in fact, these, the entire civil rights movement was the work of uh, communist Jews, you know, this kind of anti-Semitic belief that, that took root among uh, racist white people. And it was a way of basically saying, oh, you know, black Americans don't actually want their freedom and equality. They're all being put up to it by this secret group. So that's... But th- this starts even before the Civil War. Tell me about the know-nothings. Right, yeah. So, right. So, a, a lot of this goes way back to the early 19th century and um, a, a, a series of conspiracy theories involving um, Catholics and the idea that Catholics are not able to participate in democracy because they are beholden to uh, the Pope in Rome and they, they can't think for themselves. They, they will just basically do what they're told. And so these. That, these was, that would theories, become a problem when uh, Jack Kennedy was running for office. Sure. Oh yeah, and it was it was it, it was a pretty firmly held belief among non-Catholics in America pretty much until JFK in the '60s. But uh, the Know Nothings were a nativist group who were uh, avowedly anti-Catholic, and they um, worked to overturn elections and sort of line up candidates that. Um, could be used to pass anti-Catholic laws. They got some laws passed removing uh, church property from from the church and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, it was a, it was an early nativist anti-Catholic group that had a surprising success in the 1850s. And it's alive and kicking these days via the uh, the the toxic Tucker Carlson and the Great Replacement theory. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, what we're dealing with right now, um, the the Great Replacement Theory is just the latest version of this. And it's, um, you know, we've had several mass shootings here, one in Buffalo, New York, one in El Paso, where the the gunmen were explicitly motivated by this fear that uh, somehow large amounts of non-white citizens are being trucked in from uh, out of the country to replace native-born white Americans by the Democratic Party to uh, shift the the voting in this country, and it's it's this awful and pernicious conspiracy theory that that's leading to a lot of people getting killed. And of course, Tucker and uh, and Trump are still besties, aren't they? Right, exactly. Yeah, and I I found a, an interesting study about um, when you when you talk about immigration, if you use bodily metaphors. If you talk about uh, a nation digesting a new wave of immigrants, you use that word digest, uh, people will be more xenophobic, they'll be more racist and hostile. And of course, this is the kind of language that that Tucker Carlson uses in his commentary. He will say things like, uh, we are absorbing immigrants at a rate faster than we can digest. And there's there's psychological studies that show that that language is uh, deliberately used to increase uh, xenophobic attitudes. Now, I I'm probably twice your age, and I was a teenage communist in Australia, so I well remember the uh, the fears of Reds under the beds. In fact, I was one of the Reds. Now, the cold the Cold War years, of course, were rife with paranoia. Right, exactly. And, and another thing I found fascinating about America's history is that these conspiracy theories, by and large, were were usually fears that somebody was some foreign power was going to undermine the government you know the illuminati or the catholics or whatever what happens in the american post-war era is we still have this fear that the you know russian communists chinese communists are going to infiltrate the country stuff like the manchurian candidate but increasingly we start to believe that the the government itself is the conspirator especially after 
um, you know, revelations that the government is spying on Martin Luther King and uh, the CIA is uh, secretly dosing people with LSD to, to experiment on them, our conspiracies shift to the point where we think that the government is the one that is conspiring against us. And that leads to the, the, the paranoia of, you know, the 60s with JFK assassination and, and various other stuff. It's a, and it's you, a, you have a family connection, as I do, because uh, your grandfather was a, a part of the John Birch Society. Right. Yeah. He was, he was a bircher as, you know, I never knew this guy, uh, but my, my dad would tell me about how, you know, he was an intelligent middle-class, um, you know, white Protestant American who, as he watched his, uh, nation get more diverse, get more progressive, he backslid into increasingly reactionary and conservative attitudes. And he eventually joined the, the John Birch Society. Which, over the years evolved into all sorts of other things, uh, including the, uh, the the Tea Party. Right, exactly. I mean, the John Birch Society is a great example of the kind of lunatic fringe that acts as a kind of laboratory for these weird ideas. But rather than just existing in this in this tiny community, some of these ideas get picked up by by the mainstream right wing and then become you know, standard talking points. And this is how you get somebody like Barry Goldwater nominated for president. Colin, I find it interesting when you say that the fear of communists uh, led to two organisations that were, well, America's most effective secret societies. And we're talking of all things, the FBI and the CIA. Right, because, you know, when I started this book and when I started to think about, you know, what I was going to use as a definition for a secret society, I said, you know, uh, any any group real or imagined that worked behind the scenes to either subvert democracy or violate laws. And it wasn't long before I realized that the two organizations that probably, you know, literally best fit that were the FBI and the CIA, both of which worked in secret behind the scenes to... Uh, violate American civil liberties, violate American laws, uh, attempt to subvert American democracy, and you know, as, as well as international democracy as well. And they they unfortunately sort of fit the bill best of of all these other sort of fictitious um, theoretical societies. Let's let's go back to the CIA, and uh, you mentioned I think mind control drugs. Talk to that. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is this was a thing that led to. Uh, ultimately, what was called Project MKUltra, uh, the CIA was worried that uh, the Chinese had sort of discovered some kind of mind control drug. And so they wanted to get caught up. And so they started experimenting with these these drugs on unwitting American citizens to see if they could figure out um, some combination of drugs that would make somebody, uh, you know, uh, commit some act of violence against their will, uh, wipe their memory clean, uh, get them to talk, that kind of stuff. Um, the most bizarre example, and the one I, I, I wrote about in the book, is um, they, they got out an apartment in San Francisco, uh, which they rigged up with listening devices and recording devices and two-way mirrors, and then they would get um, sex workers to bring unsuspecting Johns back to this this apartment and they would drug them liberally with LSD and then the CIA would watch as the sex workers um, you know had sex with these Johns and 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 see if they could figure out what it did to them while they were on LSD it's accomplished nothing scientifically but it's really sort of a great example of just the the unchecked excesses of this project I understand no records were preserved so the program remains shrouded 
Right. There's a lot of stuff we just don't know because the, the, the it was kept off the books and, and the director destroyed a lot of the files uh, in the late 60s. And so there's there's just a bunch of stuff that we'll just never, ever know. Now, about the same time, the FBI was running its, uh, well, what was it called? Counterprobe program. Yeah. So, so the FBI had been um, originally tasked with sort of keeping an eye on potential communist foreign uh, agents, spies, that kind of thing, but gradually increased their mandate to go after the student left and um, civil rights organizations, as well as uh, the KKK. Those are sort of the three main targets of, of COINTELPRO in the 60s. And, um, you know, this led to, you know, as it kind of famously came out later, um, spying on Martin Luther King Jr., uh, sending him uh, threatening sort of blackmail letters in the mail. They tried to go after the student left. Uh, a thing I write about in the book there is there was this idea that they were going to send the ver- these various uh, members of the student left these cryptic notes that said, beware of the Siberian beetle. And their, their whole idea was that um, <laughs> these kids were so loopy and, and, and so uh, superstitious and that if you just sort of sent them sort of, you know, menacing cryptic messages like that, it would, it would freak them out and they would all turn on each other. It didn't really work, but it shows kind of where the FBI was thinking was at the time. Colin, I think that was very good advice. I've always been warned <laughs> of the Siberian beetle. Now, it was during this period that Americans started to suspect that government was the source of conspiracies rather than the target. Right, yeah. So a lot of this doesn't come out until 1970 when a group of um, anonymous uh, activists, some of whom were college professors, school teachers, housewives, uh, handymen, break into an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, the night of the Ali Fraser fight, and they um, make off with uh, several thousand pages of, of classified secret documents that they then start leaking to the newspapers. And that's how the whole story of, of COINTELPRO becomes public, and it leads to a whole host of revelations about what the American government is doing to its own citizens. And it, it, it coincides with this increasingly paranoid feeling that the government is um, no longer the victim of conspiracy uh, theories, but is in fact the, the, the cons- grand conspirator itself. And all credit must go to Eisenhower, who, of course, uh, on leaving office, warned the world of the military-industrial complex. Right, exactly. As, as he's leaving office, he, he, he puts this idea in everybody's head. He's basically like, you know, the, the government, uh, the military industrial complex, the government and its uh, private corporate partners are becoming almost an end unto themselves. They're no longer, you know, the means to America's uh, safety and defense, but they've now become just a sort of uh, kind of cancerous, self-sustaining uh organization that that is going to sort of impact Americans in in unprecedented ways. And I think by and large, he turned out to be right. Well, we'll get into that in a second. But after Nixon leaves and uh, MK Ultra is uh, made public in the in the 70s, public trust in government plummets, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it really hasn't really ever come back. I mean, I think we're still uh, in the United States and elsewhere. I think we're still in this um, era where it's very difficult to imagine that the government is working entirely in the best interests of its citizens. I think I think anybody who would argue that now would just be sort of laughed off the stage as naive. And I think we have a great deal of work to do 
in order to figure out, you know, what is our relationship to government and how do we rebuild that trust? How does that feed into the notion of the deep state, so beloved of the Trumpians? I mean, you know, the thing about the deep state I think is really fascinating is that a lot of the reason that people fixate on, cons on conspiracy theories and this idea of a secret society is because they're looking for some kind of narrative or order that makes uh, sense of, of the day's events. And these these people who believe in the deep state, they, they love Donald Trump. They love the idea that he's this authoritarian strong man who can do whatever he wants. And then they look in the, the day's news and, in fact, he's not getting things done. He's not able to just, you know wipe away, you know, non-white Americans or, or expel immigrants or do all these horrible things that he wants to do. And so the, the deep state becomes a way of explaining all of the, the problems that they see that, that Donald Trump is not able to overcome. It's sort of this explanatory mechanism. I'm uh, talking to uh, the fascinating Colin Dickey, who's telling us about how uh, the fear of secret societies has shaped American democracy. Now, Colin, what do we know about the number of Americans who believe in conspiracy theories of some sort today? Has this been surveyed? Um, it has, and sort of depends on um, the, the metric that you use. But I think uh, depending on how you ask the questions, somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of Americans will agree to at least one statement that is largely accepted to be a conspiracy theory. So that might involve anything from the Kennedy assassination to 9-11? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that 9-11 was an inside job, that's a pretty popular one. The Kennedy assassination, um, you get into the more esoteric ones about, you know, the moon landing being faked or whatever. But, um, you know, and of course now, you know, with the rise of there, there are a whole host in the, the right well, about. Well, no, slow down, Colin. The moon landing yeah. was fake. We both know that. But uh, now we often think that these theories dominate the fringes of society, the extreme right or left. But uh, that ain't necessarily so. No, I don't think it's. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I, I think the numbers support the idea that that many of us are prone to this kind of belief because. You know, I think that what the research shows is that people adopt conspiracy theories because they provide a, a narrative or an order of the world. I mean, what, what makes more sense that uh, one random guy with a kind of shoddy rifle uh, way up in a, in a building far away from JFK's car was able to assassinate the most powerful man in the world or, you know, that there was some hidden conspiracy that all worked together to make this happen. I mean, it, the, the Lee Harvey Oswald hypothesis involves a lot of chance and randomness and luck. And I think a lot of us are hard pressed to accept that so much of world events might hinge on something so random. You suggest, and I find this fascinating, that the goal of conspiracy theories is to, and I quote, soothe, calm and reassure. What do you mean by that? Right. I mean, yeah, that's, the, that's I think, the, what we're learning about conspiracy theories is people don't adopt them because they're not informed or because they're stupid or irrational. People adopt conspiracy theories because they, they do something for them psychologically. They do something for them existentially. They, they make the world make sense and, and seem to be following some kind of order. Even if that order seems malevolent or, or terrifying, it's still more comforting than um, the idea of, of chaos and randomness. Looking at the arc of history, uh, 
Are there particular times when conspiracy theories tend to take hold? I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, the great wave that led to Holocaust in Germany. Yeah, I mean, I think what we what we we see. I mean, I think they're always there to some extent, but we definitely see them more acute in times of great social upheaval or you know dramatic change. I think a very good example is the the way that conspiracy theories flourished in the past couple of years with the rise of the the COVID nineteen virus and and the subsequent lockdown. You saw all manner of conspiracy theories about you know, the origin of the, the virus or vaccines or all sorts of things. And, and because, again, I think what they, they do is they give people a measure of control when they look outside and they see the world is, seems out of control. And it's, it's a false measure, sense of control, but it's, it's a powerful one. I'd completely forgotten something that occurs during the Reagan era. Tell me about the satanic panic yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I feel like everybody kind of forgot about it. I grew up in the 80s, uh, so I was a, you know, a heavy metal child. And I remember really well how um, there was this this fervent belief that, you know, the Iron Maiden and Metallica that we were listening to was sort of leading us into dangerous territory. And we were going to be, you know, uh, end up in part of satanic rituals, which I don't know, I think we were just looking for something to do afternoons. But, you know, yeah, so this, this belief that that Satanists had overtaken, you know, daycares and schools and suburban homes and were doing all sorts of these horrifying rituals involving small children. This was Oh, now I now I know what you're talking about. Yes. Right. And you know, and a lot of people um were accused of of uh fabulous nonsense, but nonetheless were convicted and went to prison, some of them for for decades before they were exonerated. And um most of it was casually forgotten by the 90s, sort of as soon as it had blown over, so that 20 years later, when uh, you know, the Pizzagate and, the, and QAnon conspiracy theories started to allege the same thing, people acted as though this had never happened before. But it's happened in a lot of our lifetimes. It's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes conspiracy theories can almost start as jokes, and then they gain their own terrible momentum that could be said of QAnon. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true that a lot of the stuff and, and a lot of the, the danger is that it seems so so ludicrous. It seems so bizarre and, and frankly, even silly to say that um, a, a secret satanic uh, coven is operating out of a daycare in California. That seems that seems absurd. Um, and so we don't take it seriously. And then we're caught flat footed when suddenly these things catch on and, and all of a sudden lives are being ruined. And, of course, we've then got to deal with these lizard people, don't we? Well, well right. That's where we're, we're sort of headed now is this belief that, in fact, um, you know, behind the global elites is this alien race of lizard people. And, uh, again, before you completely dismiss this, on, on Christmas Day in 2020, a guy parked an RV outside of an AT&T building in downtown Nashville believing that AT&T was using 5G to spread the evil lizard people messages, and he blew himself up along with um, an entire city block in Nashville. Good heavens above. Now, finally, how might a better understanding of the history you've outlined help us, well, combat uh, conspiracy theories, not just in America, but just about everywhere? I, you know, I think the the two things that I, I hope people would get out of a book like this is is one that these things happen much more frequently than we we think they do, and I, I think again because I think 
the more accustomed we are to the fact that this is a regular aspect of American history, but also Australian history and other countries as well, um, the more likely we'll be able to get out in front of these rumors and these moral panics before they, they start to spread. Um, the second thing I hope that people get is, is the idea that these are not, you know, because people are irrational, but because these conspiracy theories are doing something existentially and psychologically for people. And, and if you really want to combat them, you have to understand what it is that they're doing for people so you can address so, that. So, so we, a bit of compassion is needed, not just factual debunking. Well, I think, you know, compassion is, is relative. I mean, um, you know, I think, I think understanding is helpful if you want to, if you want to diagnose a, a disease and, and cure it, you have to kind of understand the disease before you can, you can attack it. So I think in, in that regard, it's, it's good to listen and understand what is actually motivating these people and see if you can address it in some other way. Well, it's good to listen to you too. So uh, thanks for coming on, Colin. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.